Episode 136 of the PJ Archive is an interview I did with the great American actor Rod Steiger, best remembered from classic movies such as On the Waterfront, Oklahoma, Al Capone, The Pawnbroker, In the Heat of the Night, which won him the Oscar for Best Actor, Dr. Shivago, and Waterloo. Rod Steiger sadly died in 2002 at the age of 77. My interview with him took place in 1991 at his then home in Los Angeles, which he was sharing with Paula, the fourth of his five wives. He began by telling me what he was working on. No, I just finished a little while ago. I did a picture uh, called Guilty as Charged, which is a black comedy about a man who believes that God has ordained him to uh, find criminals that he doesn't think that have been justly punished. So if somebody came along to a terrible crime and they get parole before the uh, just sentence should be carried out, this guy thinks God chose him to find this person, bring him to, he's got a meat packing factory under which he's got Ford, a death row and an electric chair. The electric chair is red plush and with silver wings. You know. And he tries to convert them and make them convert to God and confess. Then after about four days or so, he executes them and sends them off to the better world, you know. He's like one of these nutty uh, evangelists we have who thinks he's the instrument of God's justice. And that, I just came back from the Boston Film Festival and the Toronto Film Festival, where it was received fairly well, and in Houston. Then I did for NBC a special movie where I played a... was a man in America called Gordon Carl, who uh, he was another... This was an actual person. He uh, came from North Dakota, and he formed a group called Posse Comitatus, and they were kind of a uh, elite, almost like a seg- segregationist group. And he went to jail because he refused to pay his taxes. They didn't believe you should pay the government taxes. And uh, he was in jail for a year and he got out. He didn't change. They came to get him again. He ran away. They pursued him. And then at a roadblock, he was a, a hero in the World War II. He shot two of the deputies, wounded another, and got away. And then they finally traced him all the way down to Arkansas, where they got him in a house, and they blew him and the house up. Outside of that, I'm looking for a job, you know. So you're still playing the tough guys? No, these are people who actually know neither one of them. Uh, Gordon Carl was a strong man, and not a tough man in the sense of a gangster and that. I didn't really play many. I play all my life. It seems I've been playing strong... Not tough. Al Capone was tough, but that's way back in 1957. But, I mean, I paid Pope John. He had a strength of his own Napoleon. Rasputin, Andrei Vyshinsky, they were all strong people, strong personality. And a lot of them were, I found among the biographical, I guess I could put away, people that I played, people who actually lived, uh, who were leaders, whether they were criminal leaders. Well, I only played one of those. Or... In, in the history of the world, they seem to have, which I think every individual has, really, but it seemed to be larger and more isolated. We all seem to have a piece of ourselves that we never really let anybody touch. Maybe once in a while, the one 
you love the most gets to see inside your secret garden a little flash but that's about there's a part of you that's always observing and always adjusting and always trying to meet whatever's coming at you you know whether it's an interview or an intimate discussion with somebody that you love then they seem to have this quality of being a loner or loneliness no matter how crowded no matter how many victories or what have you in their life you never quite seem to know what they were thinking and uh, you never really ever got to touch the core of the person i noticed i did napoleon and these people that seems to be a price you pay it seems also i'm not comparing myself to these people but i've met a lot of successful people around the world in various occupations not just people in the theater or whatever a movie star is. Uh, I consider myself an actor who's photographed. If you want to call it a movie star, fine. And if you call it movie star, it makes me more money. All well and good. I'm very happy about the whole thing. I see a picture in your living room of you and Norman Schwarzkopf. I'd have thought maybe a bit earlier in your life you'd have been an ideal candidate to play him. I don't know. He said he'd like me to do him, or he intimated that. We met him in... Ken we went to the Kentucky Derby in Louisville. There was this big table... And I said, who's that? And they said to my wife, and I'm my wife, Paula. They said, says, where General Schwarzkopf is going to be. I said, yeah, well, okay, that's great. And I said, I wish I was lucky enough to get close to him. He said, well, he, rec he asked for you and his wife to sit next to him. So I'm a rather a pacifist. I've never figured out whether I was flattered or not or went against my principles or not. I'm not going to make a big thing out of it. But I must say, from an acting point of view, that there is a possibility, a distant possibility, maybe I might wind up doing this guy. If I take my wig off, we look very much alike, you know, in a way. But I was interested, to, and we had very interesting conversation. He's a very bright man. He has, I, so I said, I have to ask you a question. Because when I played Napoleon, I, I found myself thinking, how do I forget and how I send people to their death? Does that bother you? He said, oh, my God, yeah. He said, in the Vietnam War, I went crazy. I went crazy, he said. But this one, no. He said, when they told me what low battle count there was, I fell on my knees. I was so happy. I was the happiest person around. He said, oh, yeah. And then I joked with him. I said, listen, do me a favor. Don't ever go into politics. He said, why? I said, I don't think the military mind belongs in politics. You know. So we had a very good, very polite, very honest conversation. He was very kind to me. You're both men of great presence. Do you think that's what's endeared you to the cinema-going public, as it were, over the years? I don't know what. I would say it's an unconscious or subconscious thing. Do you think you've either got it or you haven't? No, I think that too. But what I'm trying to say is to answer your first question. I believe you know an honest ditch digger when you see him. And even if the ditch isn't dug as well as he always can do it, you know he's swinging an honest axe or pick to do it. And I think the people know that it's very important for me that I don't want to disappoint them and I don't want to lie to them and I'm trying to do the best I can. And I don't think that's anything they ever thought about. But it brings kind of a camaraderie with the other working people of the world. They know you're trying to do your best job even when you don't. And God knows there's plenty of times you don't, you know. 
Do you reckon the stars of today have the same sort of charisma and presence as your colleagues, your contemporaries? Oh, I don't know what about, I don't what charisma, I don't, I don't, yes, I think uh, De Niro has presence and uh, Tony Hopkins has great presence. He wouldn't have been able to do, um, you know, he's a friend of mine, I'm so jealous, I would have loved to play in Silence of the Lamb that part. Oh, no, I think Hoffman, they all have, I, what I don't like, and I'm not talking about them specifically, is uh, and I know sometimes I'm accused of overacting, but I, I don't like the word minimalist being applied to actors today. Or maybe let's put it this way: I like Beethoven better than Mozart. That's just my choice. Like maybe that's why I go over the top sometimes. But I think my 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 profession demands of me to try to find the highest level of pain and the highest level of joy and present it if I'm lucky, as poetically as possible. And sometimes when looking for the lowest or the highest, you go past both points. So I'm not excusing myself because I have this terrible anger about this thing about too much, you know. Now I'm coming into vogue. <laughs> now, in my country at least, they're saying, oh, it's all right for a man to cry. Suddenly now the sensitive young modern man should cry. And when I used to cry in scenes where somebody was killed or something like that in the early days of the 50s. And that's why I'm surprised and very pleased and very flattered that the English, who don't like too much overt mm. emotion, have been the kindest people to me all, which I think is like a dichotomy. I've always, I was sure somebody said, oh my God, that's a bit much, isn't it? But then again, I think if you present the truth, you know, I have arguments with people. I said, well, you can't say, I said, well, when I see in the newspaper, in the, on the newsreel, every day I get an acting lesson on television and see people who they're interviewing with their son shot in the street, they certainly don't play it with restraint. And I'm trying to bring human behavior to the highest level of pain or joy, you know. Like I know one time I had, uh, I had suffered from depression and some four years and on and off and and I was doing a picture called The January Man and I was supposed to get angry in the scene because somebody was being dishonest. Now I was acting while I was depressed. I didn't tell people about it. But when you're depressed you feel things through a wall of gelatin. And I think what happened in this one scene where I know I went crazy where I lost my temper I broke through the wall of gelatin. My acting feelings were coming back. And what I really did, I went crazy, but I was really celebrating in life terms that I could feel again. I didn't know that then. Because I know that's one time I, uh, I did a very bad job. I went too far. But the point I was making was that the human being called the actor was celebrating the fact he could feel again mm -hmm. and didn't realize he was destroying the scene. That's what happens sometimes. Because anything can affect an actor from a cr obvious criticism to, uh, to noise, to his wife told him that morning she didn't think they loved each other and much to a bad chicken sandwich. I mean, anything. I don't care what an actor said. I can feel great and the whole world can tell me they like me. I get in an elevator and I hear somebody say, well, I didn't like that picture. Uh, I didn't like Heat of the Night so much, you know. And I'll be walking off the elevator saying, I wonder why I didn't like Heat of the Night. What, what was wrong with Heat of the Night? Is that one of your favorite pictures? Because that's the one that won you the Oscar, wasn't it? Well, I think I won the Oscar for two pictures. I think I won it for the pawnbroker where everybody thought I was, and that was a lesson in, in ego. I remember the night I went and I was nominated for the pawnbroker and I was saying I was young and cocky and I said to myself, well, let me think. 
There wasn't a picture, a dramatic picture, as good as the pawnbroker. I was sitting there thinking, I've got the witness thing. I, so I started to fantasize. I don't know if I should walk down the aisle. I don't know if I should saunter down the aisle. I don't know, maybe I should walk down the aisle and kiss some beautiful women. Or maybe I should walk down the aisle and shake the hands of some powerful men in the audience. And then either I should walk up the stage or jump on the stage. And they said, and the winner is, and I was actually buttoning my jacket and halfway out of my seat. And they said, Lee Marvin and Cat Ballou. <laughs> so it was a good lesson for me. It was a good, I mean, I couldn't believe it, uh, but it was a good lesson for me. I, uh, I should know better, as I said to a young actor today who was complaining about being called in with a lot of other actors, and who was talking about the ups and downs in the business. He's got 17 years. I've got 40 some odd. And at the end of his conversation, I said, I'll tell you what happened to me two weeks ago, because this is how this stupid business is. I was called in by a young executive of 30 some odd years of age to talk to him about a part. And he said to me, can you do a southern accent? So rather than hit him in the head with the desk, I said, well, I did a southern accent well enough to get an Academy Award in the picture of the heat of the night. Did you ever see it? He said, no. This taught me another lesson. When during my depression I wasn't working too much, there's a whole generation, a whole decade came in there who are in their mid-30s now who don't know much about Waterfront, Zhivago, or the heat of the night, or the pawnbroker. Do you have a favorite amongst those films? Yeah, the pawnbroker. Because I think I had a moment, I had a moment that might have been my best uh, moment in my life, and that's when I come out of the pawn shop, and the boy is lying on the street, he's dying, bleeding, and I put my hands in his blood, his fake blood, and I looked up, and of course I was using my daughter like it was my daughter, because I don't have a son, but that didn't take much to figure that out, and I started to go to pieces. And I was supposed to scream, and I put my head back to scream, and I opened my mouth, and at that split second, this is why I think actors should know a little bit about all the arts, I remembered Picasso's painting of Guernica, where he has these figures with their mouth open and this sharp-pointed tongue come out. Obviously, because there's a painting, no scream. There's no real verbal scream, but it was one of the strongest screams I ever heard. So my intellect and my, my instincts came together for one split second. Maybe that's what they call inspiration. And I said to myself, don't make a sound. Just look, look like you're screaming. And I've won money now. I've had people say, you screamed? I said, I'll bet you $50. So that's the highest, I think, about the highest moment I ever had in the 40-some-odd years to me. Well, my favorite film is On the Waterfront, without a doubt. What are your memories of that? Any particular anecdote from that film? Well, I don't know many anecdotes. All I know, I was scared to death. I had done Marty on television, which I'm sad about. I never got to do the movie. That's another story. And then Elia Kazan, because Marty swept the country. I don't know why. Overnight, it touched the loneliness of people in the United States. And I walked down the street the next day, and the truck drivers were saying, hello, Marty, and the garbage men were saying, hello, Marty. And I went to the coffee shop, and the guy said, what are you going to have today, Marty? So I knew something had happened, you know. And he said, I don't know what you did, but uh, Elia Kazan said, but you go read with Bud Schulberg, who wrote this script called On the Waterfront, the taxi scene, ironically. And if he likes you, you can play Marlon Brando's brother. Well, I almost fell through the floor because Marlon Brando at that time, quite deservedly, was the uh, 
New White Hope and Prince of the American Theater because of his tremendous success in Streetcar Named Desire, in which he was brilliant. So what was it like working with him? Well, I was scared to death. Uh, I wanted to keep up, uh, but I had a little bit of an ego myself. I, I, I knew I could act a little bit. and uh, So you could have been a contender. I don't know. <laughs> but what happened was a circumstance forced that scene to become better than it, than it might have been. They were shooting in a half of a cab. I don't know if the public, if I can get this clear for the public. It was half of a taxi cab. Only you didn't see it was half. We were in the back part. That's all they had. But they were shooting it in a very small room because Spiegel was trying to, that's the producer, trying to save money. And when I come in, Kazan and the producer were screaming at each other. Kazan says, where's my backdrop? Where's my background? That means he wanted to know where was the... Uh, the movie they'd run in the back of the taxi, so you'd think we were driving down the street. Well, he didn't get it. And I thought Kazan was going to kill him. And somebody said, Mr. Kazan, he said, what? He said, I came, to, one of the grips said, I came to work this morning in a taxi with a Venetian blind. He said, get me a goddamn Venetian blind. There was no ego with him. Get me the Venetian blind. we got to get out of this somehow. We can't lose a day shooting. And he couldn't shoot through the sides because the studio was so small. You could see through the side windows. You could reach out and touch the wall on either side if you were sitting there. So he was, my point is he was forced to go in on the actors. He had to go in in the whole scene almost like in close-ups. Are you still friends with Brando? I never became friends with Brando. I never became enemies with Brando. I never got to know him. He was going through a hard time. And I think he was seeing a psychiatrist at the time. I think I was too. What about other people you've acted with? Who have been the memorable ones for you? Who are the great leading I ladies? Have, and well, I liked uh, Edward G. Robinson. Uh, he was a very good actor. He was a gentleman. He loved paintings, and I loved paintings. He had a huge collection of Van Gogh. Not huge, but a great collection of Van Goghs and things like that. Humphrey Bogart. I don't know. I Gary Cooper. All of them were, I never thought of this before, but they were contained professionals. They were old bullfighters. They had been in the ring so many times. They had a whole discipline. Humphrey Bogart did The Harder They Fall with me. And I remember one day we got along very well, and one day he came in. And I said, what are you doing here, Bogey? You're not shooting today. He said, my eyes, my eyes are watery. I said, your eyes are watery? Yeah. Uh, i got to do the close-up, so. So I said, fine, because I was busy with my own problems. And I went to do the scene. A month and a half later, somebody said to me, oh, Bogey died today. I heard his voice say, my eyes are watery. My brain said, of course they were watering you, jackass. The man was in pain. He was dying of cancer of the throat. That shows you how unobservant and insensitive and dumb I can be. But that's what he didn't, but he never said anything. You couldn't get him a minute before nine o'clock in the morning and you couldn't get him a minute after six o'clock. But he always knew what he was doing and he was always a gentleman, he was always professional. Cooper was the same way, except I must say with Cooper, if there was a pretty girl around, you'd have to go where the pretty girl was and bring Cooper back. You know, he was a, he loved his ladies, which is great. Talking of pretty ladies, who have been your favorite leading ladies? over the years? Well, I haven't had that many leading ladies. I, uh, I love Lee Remick because she was a consummate professional. I'm sorry she's not with it anymore, but I am glad that her pain is over with and her suffering. 
I don't weep for the living. Weep for the living. Don't weep for the dead. Their problems are solved, and I'm glad she's out of her agony. And uh, well, the ones I'd like to work with, I never got a real good chance to work. I'm talking about. I'm talking about Julie Harris, and I'm talking about uh, an actress we had over here, who was a great actress. Uh, I don't know what happened to her, named Kim Stanley, you know. But I, you have to remember, I didn't get many scenes with women, so it's hard for me to answer that question. Julie uh, Christie was a wonderful on Javago. I remember the poor girl shaking under her costume. And there she is doing a scene with Ralph Richardson and Alec Guinness, and, and this is she's not used to even acting yet. Geraldine Chaplin was a very sweet lady. I remember her. She had to do her first scene on Javago, reading a letter to Ralph Richardson. And I remember you could see, I don't know why you didn't see it on camera, but under her whole body shaking underneath the uh, period costume, you know. And David Lean directed uh, Dr. Zhivago, of course. Well, David Lean, I have, he was a great movie maker. Mm. But you have strong connections with Britain, don't you? In fact, your first wife was British, wasn't she? Well, Claire Bloom, no, not my first wife, my second wife. Right. I loved, well, I've always loved England because I've always, I think it's the best country for an actor. There's an appreciation for acting in England, or maybe in Europe, but certainly in England, that I miss in this country. I mean, here I'm in a city, you have to remind them every Monday morning you're alive, no matter what you've done, unless, what you've done, unless you happen to be one of the hot ones who's hot for a month or two, and then somebody else comes up. And certainly when you get older, I'm in a country that worships youth and has an uh, abhorrent fear of death. When you get in your, like I'm in my 60s and that, 66, you just don't get parts you think are deserving of your uh, experience and whatever talent you might have. You know, you have to face it. That's part of the business. Do you worry about getting older? I hate getting older. I don't believe in that bullshit about, uh, you know, grow old gracefully. No, I, I'm married to a woman who's 34 years younger than me. I'd love to be a lot younger for her, I'm just on a personal level. Mm. Uh, no, I don't like it. I don't like to see my body go to pieces. I don't like the aches, the pains, and that. And uh, are you hoping to have children with with Paula or not? I we've we've been trying, but we ain't been very lucky, you know. But I have my daughter Anna, mm. who is now singing in Stuttgart. Nakosi uh, Fantuti. She's an opera singer. She sings at Covent Garden. She did that all by herself. I'm so happy it's opera, so nobody can say my daughter. Well, her father. Sure, she's in the theater because her father. She surprised us all, her mother and I. You must be very proud of her. I'm proud of her independence. How often do you get to see her? Well, now she's 30 years or 31 years old. Uh, whenever she gets a chance to come this way, or like I went to see her in Seattle when she was doing uh, Don Giovanni, and I went to see her at another opera in St. Louis, you know. And sometimes when she first started, I flew to England to see her in Covent Garden where she had a small part. And she, uh, one thing I can say for her mother and I, uh, this girl does not lack any support. I don't mean just financially. Are you still on friendly terms with her mother? Yes. I mean, when people break up, you get, what are you, these horrible, polite <laughs> relationship, you know. Uh, you never know who's was hurt the most or helped the most in a relationship it's impossible mm. so uh, we are civilized with each other mm. yeah uh, paula and your other wife came from outside the business as well do you think that's better paula, i i always joke about paula i said i took paula from the gutters of beverly hills <laughs> she came from a very wealthy family beverly hills she was going to be an actress and a singer and i met her when she was 20 and i was 50 
six, I guess. How did you meet her? 54. Oh, there's a hotel here called the Hilton Hotel, Beverly Hills Hilton. And I was with my daughter, who was visiting me in the summer. And they, there was a very famous director who did the very good movies named Mer Mervyn Leroy. And uh, they were giving a uh, dinner for him. And I was invited to the dinner, and I didn't have a date, so I took my daughter. And I got down in this great glittering hall, and we sat at the table, and across from me was this man about 75, with what I thought, and still do to this day, this very uh, attractive young girl. And I was trying to figure out what the hell is such a pretty young girl doing with this guy. And I couldn't figure, I said, Jesus, she's not a professional, is she, for God's sakes? And I said, no, that's ridiculous. She conducts herself too nicely. Well, it turned out to be she was with her father. It was funny, both of us were with our daughters. And then I knew sooner or later she'd have to go to the ladies' rooms. So then I became an old sailor. I was in the Navy for about five years, and I waited. And I waited, and finally she said, excuse me, and she went out of the banquet hall, obviously going to the lobby. And I sat there as many seconds as I could so it wouldn't look ridiculous. I said, excuse me for a minute. And then she came out of the ladies' room. I cut her off in the middle of the lobby. I said, look, i got to tell you something. She didn't know what happened. It happened so fast. I said, I have to tell you something. I'm only in town for one more night. Then I'm going to go to Europe. I'm going to do uh, Waterloo. I'm going to do Napoleon, whatever it was. i got one night. It's tomorrow night. I'd love to share that night with you. I'd love to take you to dinner. you got to give me a yes or no, and you got to give it to me now. Well, she laughed. And as she was laughing... She said, yeah, I'd like to, you know. And uh, we had been together from the first date on. What is it about Paula, then, that sort of struck you so much and still keeps you together? Well, I think the main thing would be, uh, outside of her physical... Uh, we respect each other. Maybe because my family was alcoholic and I used to take my mother out of the pubs when the, they used to call up and say, get, get your mother out of here, and uh, I would. And I was only a kid, eight, nine, and uh, the neighborhood I knew was laughing, and the kids used to tease me sometimes. I used to get in fist fights over my mother. So I must have decided somewhere in my youth, I'm going to do something so well someday that nobody's going to laugh at. Now, I never knew it was going to be acting. But I must have subconsciously said, you're going to do something, something. They won't laugh too much. They won't laugh too much, you know. And I think that's what gives me a certain intensity or what you might call charisma or whatever it is. I sometimes think that charisma is a cross between the search for joy and the fear of being discovered on the way. It brings out a certain energy that people get attracted to, you know. I don't know. To go back to Paula, why did you marry her in London? Because that's when one day I said, let's get married. It just happened to be London, and I like London. And we were there with a friend, Stanley Winston, this friend of mine, who was one of the great makeup, not makeup people, special effects people, just did Terminator 2, the original Terminator. He did, oh, my God, Aliens. I mean, he's the man's a genius. Got the first Academy Award. For, and they, they came to the wedding, and uh, we got married. And, and lived happily ever after. Well, we yeah, we get along pretty well. We get along, uh, but we supply a lot of things to each other. Our marriage is partly based, I believe, on the fact that not only is our love life okay, but always part of the woman you love is part mother, see? And she's a good mother, and she had trouble with her father. So you see, 
Mm. I'm a pretty good father. Part of me will always be a father to her. And we're giving each other things that we need. Maybe a mother who not, has an alcoholic disease and a father who might not have been as rough, whatever it was. I don't want to spread her personal life all over everything. But there are balances there. Then humor, Jesus, God. A relationship without humor is like, you know, a fish without water. Forget it. Do you think the age gap makes a difference? Oh, no. Uh, no it might make a difference. <laughs> it might make a difference to her, but it... Well, I don't know how much of an age gap there is. Now, let me... I mean, on the birth certificate, there's 34 years. But... There's a child in me. I think a lot of the creativity of a human being comes out of their child, the child inside of them, or childishness. And I'm such a big child lots of times that my mental age, I think she's much older and wiser mentally than I'll ever be. Yeah, physically, I'd like to look better for her, and I'd, I'd like to look more physically attractive. I wouldn't, I'd like my body to be younger, sure. So you put down the failure of your other two marriages to show business? No. No, uh, maybe uh, with Claire Bloom, I don't know what happened. Our marriage, our, I guess just happens with some people. Our feelings kind of died, and it just kind of ended. She went off with somebody else. And my first marriage was to an actress named Sally Gracie, but that wasn't a marriage that lasted 14 months. That was a mistake we both made. And the one to Claire lasted about 10 years, and that's where my our daughter Anna comes from. Then I was married to a woman named Sherry Nelson, who was very nice. Do you I, wish you'd had more children? Yeah, that's a mistake I made. We're trying to have a child if we can. Uh, yes, I didn't realize this until a couple of years ago, especially around this time, thanks, uh, well, I mean around holiday seasons, you know? I would have liked to see one or two more children or their children around the table, you know, it would have been real, because uh, I never really had a strong family. I, I begin to realize I wish I had had more children, but obviously I was so wrapped up in myself, or stupidly wrapped up in myself or my career, and it was moving so quickly, uh, I never paid attention. Then again, it took me three marriages to learn to trust a woman, I think. I don't know why, maybe because my mother's problems and I was alone and stuff like that. But it took me three marriages to trust. I trust Paula, absolutely. Now you're bringing her into show business. Tell me about her debut. Oh, that was in Milan. We did a uh, mini-series. I don't even remember the name of it. And I played the godfather in the scene and he's watching the television because he has insomnia about two o'clock in the morning and the phone rings and tells him that he's in trouble and he goes to get the phone and like many wives she's in bed and she says are you all right and he says i'm all right she says where, where are you going he says answer the phone then he starts to go away she says where are you going he says i'm going downstairs you take care of yourself i love you well that i had lived you take care of yourself i love you and i kissed her and then i went downstairs and then we had to do the part where i come back upstairs and she's everything all right i said everything fine you get some sleep you know, because I'm liable to say anything when I work, as long as it fits the... Uh, I like to improvise a lot. Does Paula show a lot of promise as an actress? I think she did. She was wonderful. She was herself, which it takes actors centuries to learn. Of course, she was under the guidance of a great teacher. But No, I'm joking. No, she did very well. She was herself, and she didn't try to be anything else but herself. 
And it was just like we were home together. It was fun. We got a big kick out of it. So would we work together again? Uh, depends upon the circumstances. Yeah, I liked it too. I don't mind she had a... I would, no, I would not... See, we didn't take the, uh, the job away from anybody because it hadn't been cast and we donated her salary to the Italian motion picture relief or whatever it was. So I felt all right about it. No, I would not, I would not have my wife play in a film because she was my wife. It, it was, if she took the part away from an actress who had been working years, no, I don't believe in that. But if there was a, a small scene, if I could do it so I didn't feel like she was replacing an actress, really replacing him, then maybe, I'd, you know, maybe we'd do it. What sort of things do you like doing together outside of work, as it were? We don't do much. Uh, most of my social life has been lately because I wanted to remind this town, now that I've come out of my depression, that I'm still alive. It was a tough town. So I go to dinners, and I mean, whatever I used to turn down, never do before, I've started to do now. I, I've, now, the, the one thing I've found, another interest besides acting, which I thought I never would, and it came through the only, because I have the disease, the disease of depression. And now I have talked about it. I did the keynote speech for the National Institute of Mental Health in Chicago last month because I am fighting so that the public, at least in this country, does not consider depression or schizophrenia, I don't have these, or alcoholism, consider them anything else but a disease. They have nothing to do with insanity whatsoever. Your pain is human. It's part of being human. You should never be ashamed of it. And that was my, the theme of my speech. So I'm beginning to work with mental groups in the, throughout the country where they use whatever your celebrity means because I don't know why this is what happens. I had a bypass operation years ago. We got in the newspapers. After a while, I started to get phone calls, and this is what they'd say. My father won't listen to us. He won't listen to me. I'm his wife. He won't listen to his daughter. He won't listen to his children. He's afraid of having a bypass. He's scared to death, which is perfectly natural because we are scared. Anything, any diseases are one thing, but anything to do with the genitals, the mind, or the heart, we panic, which is quite right because they're central zones. I mean, that's anyway. And uh, would you talk to him? So I said, I don't know what I can do, but yeah. So I get Sam, that's him on the phone. And I said, and I was smart enough because I was studying counseling and psychiatry. I start off, I said, Sam, I want to, you must feel pretty good, Sam. You kind of feel good. You got everybody worried to death. You got everybody under control because they love you so much. You're really making them miserable. You make you feel good. It must feel powerful to have that position, doesn't it? Of course, there's a long pause. And of course, there's usually, who the hell is this? Who the hell are you? to talk to me like that. I said, well, my name's Rod Steiger. I had a bypass operation. I did the same thing you did. And it's no good. And a bypass operation isn't that difficult. Eleven days later, I was on a tennis court swinging a racket. Not running, but swinging a racket. It isn't. It's because they call hard. It's one of the simplest operations. What happens two months later, they call me back to say, thank you, Sam had the operation. My question is, why do they listen to a half-assed celebrity when the people they're supposed to have married out of love the people they're supposed to have raised out of love can't get through to them. I will never understand. I'm glad it happens. And now I'm trying to do that in, with the mental problem of depression, saying I've had depression. You can deal with it. It's going to be a lifelong thing maybe, but it's not insanity. It's, not a, it's a disease, you know.
how is your health now then? Is it my health is it... now is fine. Uh, I have to take my uh, medicine every night for depression, but that's what I'll have to do because it's a biological thing with me. It's a chemical imbalance, and I have to do that every night, whether I like it or not. Do you think it's totally chemical? You don't attribute it to anything. Well, else? you can be well. Let us not. I have not discussed this that much, but I believe emotions are one of the foundations of what the condition of your health might be. I think you get a little upset about something and it makes a chemical change in the body. You, I believe we're like an electrical and chemical instrument. And if something upsets you, it upsets that chemical balance. Just like all of a sudden you get an upset stomach, there's not much different except this is with the nerves and it gets the chemistry off and you may have I have down days I don't have them like I used to where I didn't care if I shaved or went to the bathroom or walked or got out of the bed I couldn't care about anything I didn't like myself I wallowed in it you know? have you ever considered ending it all or anything has it ever been that bad? yeah I coupled but my wife saved me she saved me well when I was in what are the church will call my black dog years she saved me from suicide more than once She's my primary, well, she and my daughter are my primary reason to stay alive. I think if I had been single, I would have long since done away with myself when I was wrapped in the depths of my depressive disease. You know. I talk about this because I've talked about it on television because I want people to know mm. that uh, you can handle it. And, Do you think uh, you're over the worst? Oh, yeah, because now I have... I have medicines that I take, and if I feel bad, I go to see, sometimes I go to see a psychiatrist friend of mine once a month, once every couple of months. If it goes bad, I go to have somebody to talk to besides my wife because... Uh, what about working? Does that help you get over that sort of thing? Does it help you put things to one side? Well, that's another problem I have. Uh, one of the problems I have is that I'm the type of person, unfortunately, since I was alone, since I was a kid, I have depended too much on outside stimuli, which may be a reason why I sometimes can act fairly well because a script and all that was outside stimuli. And I'm like uh, a hippopotamus in the mud. You know, you leave him alone, he stay there forever. I procrastinate, you can't believe it. I spend days and months doing nothing, reading and talking to my wife and <laughs> absolutely nothing. But if you challenge me, something comes alive. I guess it's like, oh no, the neighbors aren't going to win again, in quotation marks. All of a sudden, I'm alert. You know, I found a part I like. And I, sometimes, I may hate to say it, but some of the best moments of my life for me, which sounds very selfish, but maybe that's why I've stayed in the profession, in the midst of acting for a split second or so, I've had discoveries and moments that went through me like warm, peculiar winds, that were some of the highest moments of my life. I had a better moment than the audience was getting, maybe. I mean, the excitement of the thing I tried to describe in Pornbrook, this is something that happens to you once every 10 years, if you're lucky, and it lasts like a three hundredth of a second. But that's what I call the narcotics, in quotation marks, of acting. You get high that way, you're looking for it. Now, that's another problem I have. When you depend on outside stimulus, you can only get as high as the stimulus. And if you got used to highs, which you do in acting, walking on the stage in front of an audience, you're high, you go up. The fear of failure, you never, you always have an audience. When you're working in front of a camera, you got 80 people around. It's like a small theater watching you, the grips, and the cameraman, not only the director. I mean, I always say as a joke, 
if I was acting in an empty studio with an automatic camera that ran by itself and there was a cat in the studio, I'd be looking at the cat after the take wondering how to, how did the scene go, you know. It must be tough. I mean, we look at movie stars and think they'll never get ill. They're always, you know, perfect human beings. That must make it actually even more pressure for you. Well, yeah, it damaged my acting in the last couple of years back. I realize now. Do you like living in the public eye or does that make it difficult for you? I've never had the trouble with the public because there's two ways you either introduce yourself with the public. You sell yourself to them, which I think is the cheap way, on your breasts or your face or personality or something. Or your work attracts them. And when your work attracts them and they're interested in what you're trying to do as a working person, their respect for you is wonderful. If you tried to get in on your rear end or your face or, I don't know, some cheap way, there is no... Uh, they'll call you by your first name, they'll enter... But you've sold your privacy, if that's what I'm saying. If you sell your privacy to get to be famous, then you have no reason to complain. I tried to protect my privacy and, and, and get to be known. I never signed with a major studio to spill to speak. And they told me you'd never get anywhere. My, I tried to get it on my work. I figured if I keep working and my work is good, people will see it. Something will happen. Are you glad you started when you did? Or Yeah, I wouldn't want to. I'd be afraid now I get trapped in a television series and think I was a successful actor. I mean, television got nothing to do. I mean, you're not supposed to play the same. I mean, these poor people who did Gunsmoke for 22 years, no actor is supposed to play the same part 22 years, not even three years, not even one year. I mean, on Broadway, you have to do it. But, I mean, you do the same part after a year or two. I mean, that's impossible. I mean, that's you're supposed to be trying to... That's when I meet young actors today, and they say to me, you know, I can't do this. It's bad for my image. And I say, I feel very sorry for you. He says, what's the matter? You've only got one image? You're supposed to create, like Paul Muni, you're supposed to create different human beings. That's what I was taught. I'm supposed to be able to play a group of characters. I'm supposed to make people, invent people. My big problem is that I should invent them so that the instincts of the public watching can make a connection with the validity of this character and its emotional problems. That's, and it's credible. That's the beginning of acting. Which Too many people make money today just being credible. They walk like you walk, they talk like you walk, they talk, they eat like you're supposed to eat. But what happens is, especially in television, because there's no rehearsal time, they can't explore. And if they can't explore, an actor will never have a chance to surprise you. You'll never be able to come away from the TV set, very seldom anyway, saying, gee, that guy said hello. And I've heard hello in my life a million times. But I've never heard anybody say hello like that. They never surprise you. Which role do most people remember you best for, do you find? The, of all the movies and stuff? Uh, uh, the Pawnbroker, The Heat of the Night. Strange enough, people from my generation, a lot of them remember the original Marty on television, mm -hmm. which is in the Museum of Modern Art, and I'm so proud of that. I think the one that sort of takes me by surprise when I look through your credits is Oklahoma. One wouldn't imagine... Well, that was ridiculous. I mean... I lost Marty, the movie, because I went to see the people who had the rights. It was Heck Lancaster, Burt Lancaster, the actor, and a man named Harold Heck. And I said, okay, uh, you're going to do Marty as a movie. This was right after. I said, that's wonderful. I was so excited, and I'm so glad you're considering me. Okay, now, what are the requirements? He said, well, you may have to, you have to sign a seven-year contract with us. 
Now, I tell you this story because this is a philosophy the way I believe you should live, if you can, if you can, if you're not poor, if you're not starved, if you're, in, if you're not un, unhealthy or have too many children or buried under those kind of things that bury millions of people. I said, I don't know if, okay, let's say I sign with you for seven years. I can only work for you. This is the important question. Who do I sleep with? Who chooses my parts? They said, we will. I said, no, no. You cannot take away from the human being, and the human being should never give up the right of choice. Whether he's wrong or right is not important. Whether it's abortion or not, the right of choice must not be taken away from a human being. No, no, I choose with whom I sleep. Then if I make a mistake and I'm shitty in a part, I chose it. I can't go around saying, well, they made me do it, you know. And I lost it. It broke my heart. Meanwhile, I had done tests for Oklahoma. Now I'll tell you a very interesting story. We did a morning test. I did it with this young actor. I did my Judd, tried to get the part. I started the logo. Fred Zinnerman, the director of the picture, became a dear friend of mine. Tested with this young actor. I started to leave. The actor, Fred Zinnerman, the director, said to me, uh, listen, he has a little German accent. He said, I wonder if you'd mind, Mr. Steiger, the actor who's supposed to play, tried to do Judd, audition for the part didn't show up would you mind doing it again i said jesus christ it gives me two shots sure i'd like to do it again and i did it the point of the story is the actor in the morning was an unknown actor named paul newman the actor in the afternoon was an unknown actor named uh, james dean how's that for a day <laughs> a day in the life of right what do they like, these guys i mean we see them as well, i knew legends. jimmy dean i knew both of them i didn't know them that well I was uh, always kind of like a father. I don't know, even my age, we were the same, but I was kind of like a little... He respected me, and he didn't respect many people. And uh, once in a while he used to call me, and I remember he gave me his copy of Death in the Afternoon as a gift, which was very important to him. And I remember when I got the book home, I'm talking about Jimmy Dean, I opened it up, and anything about death was underlined in red pencil. I never forgot that. Have you still got it? No, somebody stole it from my house. Oh, killed me. I had a Hamlet I worked on for four years as a director. It, I, it would have been wonderful if I had the guts to direct it. Somebody stole that. I remember, I'll never forget, I hate that. And then Newman, I knew, you know, he did a, I met him, I went to the actor's studio with him, Jimmy Dean went there too. Is it, is it easy to understand that there's extraordinary goings-on that happened about people like James Dean, people still going on about him now. You know. Well, uh, I don't know how to say this. I don't mean to sound caustic. This man was an extremely talented person, and he was getting in, in my opinion, with a crowd of people that he might have destroyed himself. And maybe the best thing happened that he went out like a rocket, you know, before... Uh, what do you think he'd be like today? I don't know. I don't know because of... Uh, I think he was going towards a group that had something to do with narcotics, so I don't know if he would have made it today. Who have been your really close friends over the years amongst your acting fraternity? Well, most of them you've never heard of. Uh, i got Stanley Winston's been a close friend of mine, a uh, guy who lives down in the trailer on my property down there named Vernon White who was the managing business manager in a way for years for Willie Nelson and Chris Christopherson. He still works for them over the phone. Uh, another actor named Paul Mantee, who's just written a book that's coming out. 
then I know, you know, Tony Hopkins and I have gotten pretty close lately over the past couple of years. He was wonderful to me when I was in London 12 years ago, whatever it was, and depressed, and he gave me a very fatherly uh, <laughs> lecture because I thought I couldn't act anymore because I couldn't remember lines and I got this in my head out of left field one morning that's it I'll never remember I'll, now I've had that before I go on stage or work all the time but I mean this was now paranoid it paralyzed me because he'd been through a similar thing himself hadn't he I don't know I never pushed him too much because of my English friends I always respect the uh, manners of their culture mm. could you ever live in England do you think oh yeah I don't know on, on what was it Churchill called it, on my black dog days, if, if I could take the gray skies too much, but I always loved England and London. Mm. But otherwise you live in Los Angeles. How long have you lived in this house for? Is it because th two and a half, three years. Since you got married, but it's your home well, together. We've been married Paul. five years. But why this house? Why did you choose this one? Well, number one, I lived on the ocean down here for years and I got tired of the winter, the storms, and sitting up at night wondering if the waves are going to come through the front room. And I, I just like this little high. And above all, I love the position because it reminds me of the south of France where you overlook almost 180 degrees of everything. And it has its privacy. On the beach, you, the houses are pretty close to each other. And it's a good size for two people, you know. It's uh, two bedrooms and three bathrooms. It's a perfect size. Involved in the Hollywood lifestyle, have you always tried well, to? No, I get that? involved when there's a reason. Like they gave a, a lunch, a roast they call it the Friars, but they gave a lunch to Richard Pryor, now the black comedian who I think is a fantastic talent. I know some people because they know. I know because we do perform the agony and the fears of failure and the desire of success, and you may see these people three or four times and shake hands once or two times. But the terror of the fear of failure and the joy of accomplishment when you make it, and I'm not talking monetarily at all, you seem to know each other for a long time. You may have only seen each other a couple of times, but you see in the eyes and the maneuver and you know the work that's behind this face, male or female, you know, they've been there. And now he's dying of multiple sclerosis. He looks like a skeleton. You know, then if uh, Sidney Poitier, uh, who, who I've been friends with for years, though we've kind of grown apart, uh, not because of any reason. They did a tribute for him in New York. I flew to New York. I flew to New York for Richard Pryor. Well, like I said, I met my wife was for Mervyn Leroy, a very respected. But outside of that, except for um, raise money for AIDS or environment, once in a while I get into that, you know. But otherwise, it's not... I don't go to parties for social reasons. Mm. I don't like parties. I never did. A party to us, a perfect party to us is uh, you can dress any way you please and there's six or eight people at the table and my wife makes a nice meal and uh, we have a good time and uh, there are people from all walks of life. You mentioned money very briefly. Does that mean much to you? Well, it means a lot to me because I came from a family that was on relief, that we lived on day-old bread and had a gold, and they gave us a tin of sauerkraut and a bag of flour, you know, when during the 30s and the Depression years. But it, no, no, it, if it did, I would have uh, done Marty. I would have signed for seven years. Uh, if it did, I had chances to do a uh, TV uh, series, you know. As long as I can take care of my family... My wife and I, and then my daughter, if she gets in trouble, which, thank God, doesn't happen financially, she makes her own living. 
So my point is, I can afford to keep my independence. Mm. If we got to a point, I can't put food on the table, or uh, thank God we own the house. I don't have to worry about that. But if it got to a point, I'd do anything then. I have a reason to do it. Mm. What are your great mementos and souvenirs of, of your career so you've got here? I like the Academy Award because I won it. Uh, honestly, I've got two of the British awards, the blue plaque and the black lady. I don't know where it is. I got two of those. Those things I like. I don't have many mementos. I don't keep... Uh, I always joke with my wife, you know, who would you like to go out with tonight? You want me to get my Napoleon costume or my Pope John costume or my Al Capone? You know, I joke with her like that. But I haven't kept many of those. I did have the sword and the hat of Napoleon, not the real one, but the ones I used in the picture. Somebody stole them out of the house. Yeah. What's the greatest compliment you've ever been paid? Well, I've heard it in different ways. When a human being says to me, you gave me a, a good memory. That's as far as I can go. That's all I can give you. And if I give you a memory that makes you feel better, that's even better. But that's about all an artist can do. The highest you can get is when you create your own form, which I never had that kind of talent. I mean, where they say that's Picasso-esque or Chaplin-esque. They created a whole new form. I never had that kind of talent, you know. That's... but. The gift of a memory, and if I give you a memory that's warm and instructive, that's as far as, and I'm not, I haven't done many of those. Maybe some people learned a little bit about living, but I've never gone to work with that in mind. You know. Have you still got a lot to achieve, do you think? Yeah, i got to make up for the eight, ten years that I was very badly depressed. I mean, 50 to 60, I should have done some of my best work, and I was sick. And... Uh, 60 to 70 now, I don't know what I can do because my opportunities have changed, in a, especially in an industry that serves youth. You know, your audience is from 14 to 22, 23. They're not too interested. In, uh, so what are your hopes for the future professionally and personally? Personally, I hope I, hope I have good health first above all because if I have good health, then I'll be able to give love to my wife healthily and correctly and I give respect to the people around me. That's what I want. Even though I get bored shitless sometimes when I'm not working, and even though I get down in that because I depend on outward stimuli too much, you know, I write poetry and I can paint a little bit, and uh, I'm writing a book with Tom Hutchinson, the critic of, uh, an English movie critic, is this your autobiography? Well, not really. It's kind of the stories and stuff about all the pictures I've done because I figure my life, there's a lot of people could write my, a much more dramatic life, I think. You know what I mean? They've suffered more. But uh, that I should stay healthy enough to give the love and respect enough to the people that I love and respect around me. Uh, that's about it. I'd like to have a crack at... Uh, one or two good, you know, uh, I'd love to have a crack at another. It's a funny thing, I was going to say another pawnbroker. Now I'm the age the pawnbroker was supposed to be. Yeah, I'd like to have a crack at one or two good uh, parts. I think I'm, the thing I made a mistake in my career was, because I was never that ambitious. I was always very lucky. Uh, I fell into things, you know. And then I got stimulated, and because of the fear of failure, I did them better than I thought I would do them. Fear of failure is a big thing with me. I get so afraid that I, do, I don't do bad. I get, you get an energy from the fear of failure, you know? I would have liked directed more.
And now, and especially here, it's too late because, I mean, Willie Wilder, great director, Fred Zinnemann, a great director, these people, Capper before he died, these people were considered too old and has-beens by the town. And that's the difference between Europe and here. That's why I love London. And maybe we're coming down to the core of me, a man who's try always fighting for the respect he might have not, his family may not have gotten because of a disease named alcohol when he was a child. You say you're very fond of England. Yes, I, th I don't know why, and I hope it never stops. But the English public have been the most generous and the most kind to me of any country, including my own. Are we going to see you in England soon? Well, I have an idea. I'd like to do a like a one-man show, but I don't want to compete with wittier people. And no, I'd like to do a one-man show, but I don't mean a show where I act or anything like that. I'd like to uh, do a show where I have certain shots, like from the pawnbroker and the waterfront and the heat of the night and Zhivago and things like that, and then just talk about them and talk about acting and then take questions from the audience, you know. But I don't know. I don't know if that kind of show is going out of style or not. Maybe that's a lazy man's show, but one thing I do want to say, I want to thank the people of England who have been more generous to me and kind to me all these years. And when I was, uh, when I had my depression, at many times the thought of, in letters from England, saved my day, and I'm very grateful for that.